Hello, everybody, and welcome to the next episode of the Mastering Commercial Real Estate Podcast. I have Michael Wayne, CEO of Detroit Riverside Capital, here today. Really excited to chat with him. We were just going over his story and how he got started before we hit record here, but I wanted to save all the good stuff for you guys and make sure that everybody was privy to what Michael's been doing, how he got started, what his journey's been like, what he's working on now. Um, but I will let Michael introduce himself and tell Michael, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got started and what what you're working on right now. Awesome, man. Sounds good. Well, thanks for having me on. Much appreciated. Always enjoy this kind of thing. Um, I, I like telling your story too, because I think it's different than many stories and it, it shows that there's so many paths to get into this business. So Ours was similar to a lot of people at the beginning in the sense that we were working corporate jobs, getting sick of it, wanted to do something new. And, um, you know, when I say we, I'm talking about a really good friend of mine at the time. His name's Al Karras. He's my co-founder and best friend. And, um, you know, we've done all this together. So we, we were both kind of in corporate jobs that we didn't love and didn't see like a long-term career in and wanted something more entrepreneurial. Um, I'd always been an entrepreneur. My very first business, I was 12 mowing lawns and had a healthy vending business, had a photography company, used to like buy and sell concert tickets, like literally anything under the sun to, to make a couple bucks as a kid. Like I was all about it. And so I'd, I've had this blood in me for a long time. And uh, my uncles, dad, grandfather, everyone's entrepreneurs all around me. So I knew I was kind of restless in my job, knowing that like I didn't have a wife and kids at the time. And I'd um, you know, didn't really have anyone else to support other than myself. So I figured if there was a time to take a risk, it was then. So basically, Alec and I synced up. Uh, we got into real estate by kind of looking at what some other, um, we kind of considered a bunch of different options at first and ended on real estate because there's a guy by the name of David Tupin, who's become a name. A lot of people know him now. Oh yeah. And no, I know David. He's our, he was our first guest on the podcast. Yeah. He's a friend of mine. It, Dave's the man. He we owe like our early real estate education to Dave uh, because he was he went to high school with Alex, so they were good friends from high school. And then um, basically, when we started getting into it, Dave taught us a bunch early on, and so it led us down a path of looking for a value add deal, much like everyone else. And in the process, we stumbled upon a piece of dirt that was fully entitled and approved for forty eight units. The only thing was, someone had to build it. So we didn't know anything about either business at the time. And so we figured, well, how hard can it be? Let's give this whole development thing a shot. So the whole story of how that deal happened is a story in and of itself. But for the sake of this intro, I'll, I'll just say that we, we put the money together, we built the building, we've leased and fully stabilized it, and we have really, really happy investors. So from all ends of the spectrum, it was like an extremely successful project and the single hardest thing I've ever done in my life at the same time. So a blessing and and uh, and very, very challenging at the same time. And so now we parlayed that first project into the second one that I'm now sitting in. We built a building right across the street, finished it up a couple of weeks ago. And then now we're looking at a pipeline of a little bit different product from what we built to date, but all multifamily focused, all ground up stuff. And um, we, we have a specific interest in developing a repetitive model that we can scale across a number of sites, number of markets, and utilize a same or similar design each time. Uh, so we're working on implementing that strategy in two different sites right now and many thereafter. So that's our story in a nutshell. Dude, that's awesome. So how did you get, I have a bunch of questions about everything that you just said, but let's start with how you met 
David and what you got, what got you plugged in with him? And when, when, when was that? Was that like five years ago, three years ago? Yeah. So it's, let's see, 2018, 2019, somewhere in that range. Um, I think we started linking up with Dave. Like I said, Alec and I have been friends since high school. So like we already knew each other. We were talking all the time about, Hey, let's start something together. What do we want to do? And we were seeing Dave on Instagram you know, real estate Jedi. We're like, man, look at this kid. You know, he was crushing it. And he was like 23 and buying these huge And deals. he was just starting right around that time. He oh, was re- yeah. like picking up steam, like really acquiring properties, probably two or three. This is like that, the dog days of Dave. You know, he was living in that, that flippy dead in like Southfield or something. I mean, he was like grinding it out and, and had a lot of really success. And so anyways, we're watching all this happen on Instagram. We're like, man, we got to learn about this stuff, you know? Like, so we got on a couple of calls with him. He kind of showed us the ropes um, and then eventually it led to like his REL group, which you may or may not be familiar with, but real estate. Lab, oh, yeah. yeah, I'm in it. Right on. All right. Very good. So I was a member of that at, at once upon a time too. And, um, you know, really created a really good ecosystem, a bunch of people. So the whole day friendship kind of spider webbed into all kinds of guys, Sam Silverman, Axel, uh, Tori Sheffer. Um, Zach Horworth. So we, we've become really good buddies with a lot of those guys and like that community's kind of stayed together over social media and whatnot and um yeah it's been a blessing for our career for sure yeah yeah that's awesome yeah i saw when i was doing my my research and background that you were on axel's podcast um not too long ago i don't think but yeah axel's got a crazy prolific podcast social media presence we're hoping to model after him i mean he is he's insane about all that but on that on that development when you talk about a repetitive model are you just talking about using that same design to go out and do the same development the same building just in a different place or what do you mean by repetitive model yeah well i explain it like this like the building that i'm sitting in and the first building that we built are four-story mixed use in downtowns and so once you understand the construction industry you know that that's a very difficult thing to replicate because every site is different, every downtown is different, every zoning ordinance is different, every site condition is different. So it's very difficult to find another site that that same exact design would apply to. So we realized that early on. We're like, man, we do all this work, we spend all this money, we design this beautiful building, and it's one and done. And um, we realized that there's other types of products in other types of sites that can be a lot more repetitive, much more consistent zoning, much more consistent site conditions, and so they can they can facilitate the use of a more consistent product type across those different sites. Um, and so our goal is to design the perfect singular building where we think about every inch of that thing and every single nail we need to use inside. We joke about, you know, we want to know every nail inside this place, because if we can perfect that one model, we can then scale that across a bunch of different sites repetitively because we can leverage that same design work over again. And it, it's not just the architecture, it's it's everything related to the construction. It's it's where you source materials from, it's what you're, you know, what kind of labor you use, uh, how your labor performs the work. It's, these development projects are a lot more than just, you get a set of plans and you build a building. There's so much more to it, particularly when, we, when you're trying to do it in a cost-effective way. You really have to understand what's actually happening in the construction process in order to understand how to like optimize the cost. So in any case, this repetitive model does that for us and allows us to invest an enormous amount of time into designing that one building because we know we're going to utilize it again. 
And so we've kind of developed two different models of it. The first is a four unit building, two car garage in each, uh, two two beds, two three beds, about 7,400 square foot in total for the whole thing, all four units. And um, that's really designed for like an empty nester community, um, you know, people selling their homes, looking to move into something maintenance free. It's meant for smaller sites because they're smaller units. It's meant for lower densities. Um, and then on the flip side of that, we have a 20 and 21 unit building combination that gets us this really nice unit mix between studios, ones, twos, and threes. And that's more for larger sites, 40, 50, 60 acres, where we can do two and 300 units. And we need to consolidate some of that density in the effort of uh, decreasing horizontal construction costs. So the more units you can build over a smaller piece of dirt, the less dirt you have to improve and thus the less expensive the earthwork is. And that's why you see people in cities stacking 50 floors on top of each other. I mean, it's not the only reason, but that's one of the reasons is the site work on that can is a lot less expensive because you're, you're just manipulating say an acre instead of 50. Um, so in any case, these bigger sites facilitate this bigger product type and we want to kind of consolidate some of that density. So we developed those two models and basically we'll try to adapt each one of those models to each new site that we work on. Gotcha. No, that's awesome. And so what gave you the knowledge to go into development, learning development? Because <laughs> I think that your first deal was a development deal. And just wanted to run into everything that goes into your first deal, <clears throat> why you chose development, why mm -hmm. didn't, because a lot of people that we've talked to are value add investors and yeah. going straight into development. Cause that was your first deal, right? First deal ever. <clears throat> yeah, Excuse that's me. awesome. I just totally you're good. <laughs> forgot to drink water for a second. No, you're good. If you need to cough it out, no, go for it, man. Good. We're all good. <laughs> okay, so you're right in the middle of your question, but I, I think I understand the premise. I mean, development for us wasn't a choice. It was like an accident at first. Like we didn't intend to get into it. We got into it because we found a site that we really liked and, and we really wanted apartments there. And the only way we could get that is by building them. So that's like how we ended up there. But when we got here, what we realized is like, it's a much less crowded sandbox. Like for every 10 value add investors, there's probably one developer. Maybe those numbers are, are double, like 20 to one. Um, there's so many less people in development. And so it makes the competitiveness a little bit less severe. Whereas like even today in today's interest rate environment, like I guess like volumes down a lot, but still like if there's a good deal, it's a competitive situation. And like the same is true for development. But if you had 10 people looking at a value add deal, you have, you know, again, one, two or so looking at a development deal. Anyways, my point is that was one of the things that attracted us to it. The other aspect is just, I've always had this inherent interest in construction. Like when I was a kid, I would have my mom take me to construction sites and I would just like sit there and watch the dirt movers and the bulldozers. And I just thought it was super cool. As we so, all do. Right. Yeah. So, so that's like, <laughs> so yeah, kind of unique, but that, that's like that passion, like is interesting to me as a part of development. Like I like the idea of taking a blank canvas and creating something completely new that's going to be there for hundreds of years. Like it, it is like a crazy thought when you kind of process it that way um, in terms of like how permanent what we do is, but there's this element of all that that I like. You know, yeah. That, and that's something that really separates. Cause I, I also hosted a podcast called Jordan year where I interviewed entrepreneurs who were, 
really in that growth and they, they gotten past the grind stage. They, they're really well established. They have a business. They're still growing the business into what they dream it to be, but everything about it was their story always incorporated some element of passion. There was some childhood story or something that happened. That was a key moment that drove them to do what they're doing. And so to hear what you're talking about with your mom, taking you to the construction sites and looking at, you know, the properties being built and that being a curiosity of yours. Is there something that with the podcast being called mastering commercial real estate, is there anything that you feel like you've mastered or on your way to mastering have a goal of mastering or anything like that? You know, um, I would love to, to say so given the title of your pod and the, and the goal here, but like to master something in development is so challenging because there's so much, information to master you know like you you can kind of get your arms around the concept of value add pretty quickly but to truly understand construction it's a lifelong endeavor so i don't think i'll truly ever like master anything about this industry because it's always ever changing but i i think that what you can master is like the process about how you go about a development and that's where i think the most inefficiency lies and that's why i think we have a housing one of the many reasons we have a housing crisis in this country is because like it's so challenging to procedurally build these things that like mastering that alone can accelerate your progress and accelerate deal flow arguably more than anything else. And so what we focus on is, is how are we doing this? And that's what feeds into like our new strategy of going for something more repetitive is we can scale and grow a hell of a lot quicker and master a process a lot faster if that process isn't completely changing every time we go to do it, which is what happens when you have these four-story mixed-use buildings. So our goal is to master the process. And, and further to that end, what, what else we've done is like gotten into the material sourcing side of the business. So we've created like a whole different company that basically buys all the materials that we need for the development and sells them to our construction projects. And because we're financing with investor equity, like it's not like we're just paying ourselves our own products like all this is like we're selling things at normal prices we're buying them at wholesale and so we've we've gone up the supply chain in that sense and then um that's also allowed us to do that on a third-party basis so not only can we sell materials to our own projects but we can also sell to other people's projects as well so um you know that whole process in and of itself is is an art form to be able to source materials effectively and, and at the minimum cost like it, it's very very difficult um so we're emphasizing an importance of that process and then outsource what we can insource what we have to and um and scale from there that's awesome so when you're talking to people about real estate when people ask what do you do if there was a situation where you could just talk about anything that you wanted to about what you do, real estate, what what would that be? What's your favorite aspect of the business, what you do that really gets you excited? Uh, you know, I think, and, and forgive this if this sounds a little corny, but I, I think it's like the altru altruistic aspect of this business. Like I, I really believe that developing specifically apartments is a, is a truly altruistic endeavor because on the front end, like you're buying a piece of land from somebody who wants to sell it. So you're giving them liquidity to liquidate what they own. You're taking that piece of land and you're investing $10 million, let's say. Well, the 10 million is going to pay 
ate hundreds of people throughout that project and put food on their tables and support their families. And so that's beneficial to society. And then you fill, you finish the building and you offer housing to a hundred new people. And, and that's a basic human necessity. And all the while you're using investor capital and bank financing to do it. And investors get an opportunity to invest passively into real estate deals that they'd otherwise never get to see. So all the way around the chain, like we're creating value for a ton of different people. And I think that's what I love most about the business is like how many different people, number one, how many different people it takes. Like it really is an army that it takes to build these buildings. And then how many different people you can touch and support throughout that process is what I find really cool. Exactly. No, I'm, and I agree a hundred percent with that. And I, I had the opportunity to explain my business to an acquaintance who I was like getting to know better and we're getting to know each other better about like what they do, what I do. And it was cause telling them about what I do. I was like, Oh, I'm a commercial real estate investor. You know, we look at apartments and we renovate our value add and all this stuff. And it came out, it was like, well, are you just, are you just gentrifying or pricing people out of neighborhoods like that coming up thrown in? And I was like, no, no, that's, that's not what we're doing. Actually. There's, there's people that go out there and do that. And it's unfortunate and I think it's a bad business plan. But what we do is we get properties that are undervalued, who are undermanaged. There are properties and units throughout the entire complex that are out of date, not working, service requests that have not been met. Imagine you're living in an apartment and you have put a service request in for a broken faucet you know you're, you're there's a leak or something important fridge isn't working and nobody is taking care of it that's bad that's that's a bad place to live so what we're going in is taking a look at these properties that are undermanaged owners who have no vested interest in the property or the people that are living in it i care a great deal about the people that are living in these properties and it's important to go through and say hey if we fix x y and z add this, this, and this to the property, would you be okay with paying a little more rent? And nine times out of 10, the answer is yes, absolutely. Please. We'll, we can, we've been paying, we already know we're paying you know, way below what we should be paying. And we would love to get a place that we have pride in that looks new is working and things like that. And I think that's exactly what you're talking about is providing something that people really want and need. And it's, you know, one of the main things it's, you know, food, water, shelter and everything like that. So I'll end my tangent there, but <laughs> I agree, man. All, all the way around. I agree. I, I think it's the beauty of what we do. Um, I mean, housing is such a necessity, obviously, and, it, and it's also in such short supply that to the extent we can create more of it or create better housing is, is truly having an, an impact. Yeah. And then the need for developers and the need for people to create affordable housing and housing in general is more prevalent now than in recent history, you know, in the last probably five, 10 years, because things have jumped in price so much. And there's such a need for housing in these, these high density areas. I mean, Michigan, you're in the Detroit area. I mean, that's a very high population area. I'm in Austin. That's a high population area with a lot of people moving in the need for affordable housing is extremely high. Is, is there any affordable housing component to what you guys are doing? Or do you have plans to get into that? And totally fine. If not, I'm just curious since we're on the topic. Yeah, no, of course. So affordable housing development and operations for that matter is 
very, very different. I was going to say a completely different business, but like it in effect is just, you know, it's the same category business, but the way that you finance them and the way that you operate them is completely different. So from a construction standpoint, everything is about grants in the affordable housing world. And so you have to go and get these housing tax credits, which basically can subsidize, you effectively get grants from the Michigan house, uh, the Mishta, let's say, and then you go and sell that to a, like a bank or someone that basically wants a tax write-off and they give you cash. And so you trade the, the credit for the cash, right? But it's all about getting those grants. And so the process of getting those grants is a whole science in and of itself. And there's like guys out there that focus specifically on it. Like Evan Holiday with Holiday Ventures is a great example. His company only does affordable housing. And that's because they mastered that grant approval and grant writing process. We know absolutely nothing about that. So if we were to get into affordable housing, we would have to go to an Evan Holiday type person that knows everything there is to know about it and partner with that person to create the project. Because for us to go and learn that would be starting from square one because we've never done anything you know comparable to that. But we do have an aspiration for it because if you just look at the writing on the wall, like rents cannot continue to grow at the rate they've grown. It's just like to the level that they've outpaced income is an atrocity. So it's unrealistic to say that we're going to keep experiencing 2.5% rent growth forever with incomes not correcting to allow for that. Um, so I do see an inevitability in, at some point, every no one's going to be able to afford housing because rents have gotten too high and everyone will need to live in a quote-unquote affordable or subsidized home. So um, for that reason, kind of in the long term, we definitely want a presence in, in affordable housing. But I mean, the, the key to affordable housing is it, like the government... The government could literally just buy affordable housing, like creating affordable housing is not the problem. It's paying for it because effectively what you're trying to do is allow someone to live somewhere paying a rent that doesn't justify what it costs to build that home. So the solution is either shrinking the unit to, to make it more cost effective or someone just taking a bath. Someone's got to give money to it that knows it's going to be lost or not, you know, returned on it. So the only person willing to do that is the government. And they do enough of wasting money so they could just allocate some of that in this direction. And that that is, in a sense, what they do with these housing tax credits. Like, I will say that. Like, that's effectively what they're for. But my point is, the limitation of affordable housing in this country is based on the limitation of grants from government entities or affordable housing providing entities. So the bottleneck to creating affordable housing is that. And that and... On the entitlement side, it's also more challenging because if it's an affordable community, like there's stigmas behind that and you get NIMBYism and people don't want it in their backyard and that whole thing. So like there's more challenges on the approval side, but like, you know, I don't necessarily know what I'm talking about, but what I, what I think is true is that it's the financing that really holds it up. So if there was a breakthrough in that, I think the uh, availability of affordable housing would be a lot higher. Sure. No, I agree hundred percent. And with your experience in, development and what you guys are working on now so your first development project was in what year 2020 uh 2020 we finished so 2020 was when it finished when did it start began um it took us like 14 months to build so 2019 gotcha and so what what has changed in your opinion in the development landscape the development business in real estate from that time to now and the projects that you're looking at today and going forward well interest rates for starters has been the biggest impact and that 
that hits everybody, but especially development, because basically what we have to do is finance our interest costs during construction. So like you don't have any money during construction to pay your interest costs. You basically have to allocate a portion of your construction budget to pay interest back to the bank. And so if your expected interest rate for construction is 4%, then that's a lot lower interest reserve, a lot lower capital costs in the project than if the projected interest rate is eight. Right now we're underwriting eight and we used to underwrite three and a half, four. So it's doubled our interest reserve cost, which has created higher capital costs and more equity required and more debt required. Um, and at the same time, it's gotten thinner on the other end because when you look at the income that these properties can produce, there's a restriction as to how much debt you can take against that income, debt service coverage ratio. And so as interest rates have gotten more expensive, debt service coverages have gotten tighter because debt costs have gone up and income hasn't changed or not changed as much as the interest rate change. And so anyways, that has gotten a lot more challenging as well. Um, beyond that, it's been inflation. So like just cost of materials is dramatically inflated. In some cases, 50 and 60% which doesn't track at all with like any of um, the, the like published inflation numbers, but it, it's just incredible. I mean, we, we see 50% price increases from three years ago on all kinds of stuff. So that's been really challenging. And those are, those are the keys, right? There. Those are the big ones that, uh, so we, we've had a lot more difficulty with finding deals that pencil because of those factors. And so you yeah, just have to be more selective in terms of what sites you're picking. And yeah, and that's that's amazing insight. What has the construction cost landscape looked like from 2020? Because I know things shot up like crazy during the pandemic versus where they are now. I know we haven't had a guest touch on any of the construction cost things, and I feel like you'd be someone who is uh, knowledgeable on that end of things. I mean, for those watching it, it kind of did this, and then that. So like we're still more inflated than than before the spike but prices have deflated since the peak of the spike if that makes sense and like the spike was caused by covid and caused by shutdowns um and like lumber is the best example of this because like during covid lumber mills shut down and then as covid was like reopening lumber mills are operating at lower capacities and they were also forecasting much lower demand for lumber so what happened was demand spiked because everyone during COVID was doing home renovations and like construction was actually happening and no one anticipated that. And so all this demand is going through the roof and supply is going the other direction, nose, nose diving. So it created this huge supply demand imbalance and that's why prices quadrupled. So lumber went, I think from its lowest or like the recent low pre-spike was something like 400 per linear board foot. And I think it got as high as maybe 1600. I know it got the 1200 at one point. So it tripled or quadrupled in that span. And today it's, I haven't checked it recently, but you know, I've seen it back in the 400 range. So lumber is one that's pretty much returned, uh, you know, plus say 20% from its sort of stabilized level pre-pandemic. Um, but others haven't been so fortunate. You know, drywall's gone up and hasn't come down. Uh, HVAC equipment is just ridiculous. That's what I'm talking about, 50% inflation. Like same furnace that was a thousand bucks before is 1500 bucks now, three years later. And it's like, what, why? You know, like, I don't know. Um, so in those areas, it's been really, really challenging. And so how do you, how do you track all that? How do you compare? Is it just relationships with the 
contractors and vendors that you have? Is there anything, any reports, news outlets, any resources that you use to track these things? How do you keep a pulse on the cost and materials market? Because I feel like that's one of the, if not the most important aspect of being a developer. Yeah, it's important for sure. Um, I'd say like for commodity stuff, like lumber as an example, you can track the futures price of lumber. So it's a published thing. You can Google it and see it every day if you wanted to. So some of them we can keep up with that way. Other ones, it's really just talking with trades. Also, like I mentioned, our material supply business. So like that company frequently gets emails from suppliers saying 5% price increase coming, 10% price increase coming, whatever the case is. And so we, we track it a little bit that way. There's also, I think RS Means is the name of it. There's like a couple of these groups that compile a bunch of data from construction projects and try to give estimated costs for different categories and so on. Um, we don't use those much, but I know that some people do and they're a decent resource. So it, it's really just a guess and check situation with, you know, when we're underwriting a deal, we guess as to what it's going to cost. And then when we get some kind of plans representing what we're going to build, we can go and get preliminary estimates and we make sure that those numbers match. And we're kind of comparing between that and the previous estimate we got for different per square foot costs between different categories and how those have changed or per unit cost. And so we're we're doing that process mostly. And, and that seems to be fine. Gotcha. And so what differentiates your team, your business and competing with larger development shops who are all kind of going after the same thing? Because if, if I remember correctly, your project is a mixed use ground up development with how many stories? Four. Um, four. four. Yeah. Four mm -hmm. stories. And so this is highly sought after product. It looks beautiful by the way great project for everybody that wants to to check it out what's the the name of the property jordan 3250 so if you just plug that into google it'll be the first one that comes up yeah yeah y'all find it and it's a great looking property what gave you guys the edge in finding that property and what allowed you to beat out the competition because that was a very hot market when you got in on that deal right yeah i mean what's interesting is that this deal no one wanted really. I mean, this deal it had been through four other owners. No one had the guts to build it. And, and basically we came along at the end and found these guys that had owned it at the time, intended to build it. They were looking to raise equity. And so originally we came to them and like, we're just going to raise equity for them. And they were going to build it. And then we realized that they didn't know any more than we did and we didn't know anything. So we couldn't let that happen if we were going to go raise the money on our first deal with like, investor capital like we had to at least be in the driver's seat if the ship's going down we're going down with it type thing and we weren't gonna let um take that risk with someone else basically running the show so we come in um basically bought out the the deal by the land by the plans by the you know by way we buy the entitlements and um and when I, when I say it wasn't competitive, it's because there was some remediations on the site initially. So it had been through remediation. People were a little weary of some of the environmental conditions. But I mean, we just hired a consultant. They looked at the reports and gave us the all clear. Talked to some attorneys, gave us the all clear. So we weren't worried about it. And then the other thing was this downtown is, I mean, it certainly wasn't a downtown before the last three buildings were built down here. Uh, Jordan and Brunswick being two of those three. And so it's become a lot more vibrant since those projects have been built but before they were built it was not an area you'd even consider downtown there was like one or two four-story buildings and a lot of single-story retail and just nothing going on and um, i think people 
had trouble seeing the vision. They weren't really sure if it was there yet. And we were naive and optimistic and felt it was. So we, you know, we're willing to take the chance and, and we were able to get lenders and investors to believe the same thing. And that's ultimately how we pulled it together. So I guess right place, right time, uh, you know, blind optimism in a sense for this one. But, you know, today when we're looking at other deals, like it is a very competitive environment. And I think to answer your question, like we, it's tough to differentiate yourself in development when you're hunting for sites because all the seller wants is the most money. And oftentimes we don't want to pay the most money. So we lose way more deals than we win because we're trying to buy right the same way you buy an existing deal. Like you're not going to pay, you know, a five cap when you think it's worth a six. I mean, it's the same thing with land. So like you have a number you'll pay and sometimes you get lucky and there's no one else that outbids you. And I know other times you don't, but a lot of times it's price. Sometimes it's terms. And so you can get a little bit competitive with terms with different earnest money deposit timeframes or different approval contingencies waived or things like that. Um, but we really just stick to, our desired terms and offer those when we like a site and, and take the ones we get. That's awesome. So when you're going into a deal and let's just, let's just use your first deals as an example, because it's a great example. When you go in, you say, I have never done this before. And I'm sure you didn't say that, but they're going to ask and they find out I've never done this before, never done development, never done. Well, you've done a degree of real estate, right? I've done anything. Not, I, I didn't <laughs> That's right. I literally hadn't bought a house. The very first loan I ever signed was a $7 million construction loan to build that building. <laughs> <laughs> no, no Listen, idea. if that's not inspiring to everybody else listening, I don't know what is. I mean, that's the thing I'm going to clip on all of our social media to promote this. <laughs> but, um, what, I mean, how did you get people to sign on with you? How did you get people to invest in the deal and feel confident in a development? which is the, you know, on the spectrum of real estate on the higher risk end, if not the highest risk end of things. Well, I mean, the very first thing you got to get people comfortable with is the deal itself. They got to believe that 48 apartments here are going to work, right? And so you show them the data. We showed them a market study, 2,400 units demanded. We showed them a disproportionately higher average income in this immediate vicinity. We showed them occupancy rates of existing apartments and they were all in the 98, 99% range. So you put all those factors together and it doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that apartments would lease up here. So once you get over that hurdle, then it's just about, okay, well, how do we get to having apartments we can lease? Well, we got to build them. So it's the risk of construction. And that we tackled specifically in that deal using a guaranteed max price contract with our construction manager. And so basically what that means is they look at your plans, look at the building, figure out what it's going to cost, figure out how long it's going to take them to build it. And then they give you a contract that guarantees those things and I use big air quotes because nothing is guaranteed there's always discrepancy but on paper it's guaranteed and the bank likes that so you do it and and basically all the contractor's doing is going out and getting a bunch of other guaranteed contracts from his subs so he's taking all the risk from their subs and putting himself over top of it all and and selling that risk to us basically and so that process makes a lot of people comfortable because it basically says that the contractor is going to build the building for this number. And as long as that number plugged into your pro forma makes sense, it gets a lot of people comfortable. Um, beyond that, we had a really good contractor. They're called Tower Construction. They're out of Southern Lake, Michigan. They're excellent. Um, we recommend them. 
but they were super, super helpful in the way of education. They were by far the most educational. Like I, I've learned so much about construction from the guys that I worked with over there. And then beyond that, you have your architect, you have your mechanical engineers, you have different trades that you talk to. So I'm just a sponge and I will just talk to anybody and I pick up so much more information that way than I do from reading books or listening to things. Like I do listen to podcasts a good amount more than I read books, but the majority of what I learn is in the field doing. And there's no substitute for that. A lot of people want to read books and listen to podcasts until they know everything. And what they end up realizing is that had they just started sooner, they would have learned everything they learned from all those books in a quarter of the time. And, and the same is true for development. Like there's some resources out there, none great that I've found anyways, um, for wrapping your head around this whole business. You just got to talk to people that do it and understand how they do it. Right now I got my head down trying to build buildings. So anything that takes my time away from that is, is tough to justify right now. And I'm just between all the different projects we got going on, like I said, I got a couple different businesses. Um, I think time management is the hardest thing for me right now. And it's like such a cliche because everyone struggles with it, but it it is definitely the biggest inhibitor to growth across all of our businesses is my ability to manage time effectively across the different businesses and different projects. And like, yeah. it, it's funny because I miss the days of Jordan when Jordan was my single sole purpose in life was to build that building. And I could solely focus on that every day. I was way better. Um, now I got to, I got to take 30% as much time and try to do the same thing with three different projects. So we're getting to the point that we're going to need help. We're going to need associates and in, in, in development professionals. I don't even know what we call them, but basically people that run projects um, because finding the project, managing the overall aspect of the project and doing that for four at once, you can't be as involved as you need to be in a singular project to make sure it's successful. So that. That's on the vision board for us, for sure. <laughs> so let's well, let's talk more about that. What does your average day, your average week look like on what you do on a daily basis? Well, I'm, I'm an office guy. I always have been. I got to get out of the house. So like, I, and, and we have an office across the street, so it's pretty convenient. So I, I get to the office. Um, sometimes I work out in the morning. So if that's the case, I'm getting in by like nine or so, if not 7.30, 8 o'clock. And then... It's a question of how many meetings do I have that day and how many windows do I have to work on other stuff? And, and I think meetings are another reason why I struggle to like execute on a lot of things is because so many times I spend so much time in these meetings. So I, I have a fair amount of those. Um, and and allow me to interrupt. What are, what are these, these meetings for? Who are, who are you meeting with? What types of professionals are you, are you taking these meetings for on a daily basis? Well, today's was architecture. So we spent two hours working on the, the 20 and 21 unit buildings I was talking about, working on those designs and getting the floor plans. I like to say finalized, but they're not finalized. We're, we're always chipping away. So we're chipping away at getting those updated. And like, that's a, a two hour session sitting there looking at CAD on the computer screen with like an architectural drafting professional there, giving us measurements and thinking things through with us. And like, those are the best meetings. I, I love those meetings because... <laughs> They're fun and they're interesting. And the not so fun meetings are like when we're, you know, reviewing legal docs for a new deal or something like that just freaks me out. And I'm so thankful for attorneys uh, when we're in those processes. But I mean, meetings are everything under the sun. Sometimes I'm meeting about Brunswick uh, budget with our contractor and we're finalizing change orders or budget discrepancies or 
Sometimes I'm meeting with trades, talking about new projects that we're working on and, and what particular thing they can do for us and why they're going to be cost effective and, and so on. Uh, sometimes I'm meeting with the city. So I do that all the time. Like we'll have a meeting with the city manager or the mayor or the director of community development. And we'll talk about a site that we're interested in and what we're looking to do with it. And, and you got to kind of rub elbows and kiss babies and, and do the things to you know go to the charity events and go to the fundraisers and all that stuff um, to get in with those people. And then sometimes I'm standing in front of city councils and giving presentations about new developments and why they would be good for the community. Um, so it's a lot, it's all, pretty different from one another. And that's one of the things I like about it is like some days I'm focused on heavily on like the design and the architecture and the engineering and other days I'm focused heavily on the finances and, and the bank account and the accounting and, and that sort of thing. And other days I'm on site, literally moving boxes around and swinging a hammer and installing sinks and stuff like that. So um, it just really depends on what we got going on. And you got to be a little bit of a Swiss army knife in this industry to, to be able to adapt to all the different things. Um, but that's why I love it, you know, cause it's ever changing and exciting and interesting. No, I mean, that's, that's why I love it too. And that's why I love being, you know, business owner or entrepreneur is because you get to wear all those hats. I don't think you can get into entrepreneurship or business ownership without a love of variety and wanting to experience and taste a lot of different things. And then eventually, bottleneck yourself into the things that you you really love so thank thank you so much for sharing your daily schedule what you work on the most what are some of the things that in negotiations that have really worked in your favor things that you've learned in the negotiation process that either you found out beforehand or maybe afterwards that you could have tweaked in the negotiation process in in your deals you know, I would say one of the most effective tools is asking questions. I don't think people ask questions enough when they're negotiating. I think they tell, they say too many things instead of asking for information because I'm a logical person. And so if I just try to explain something to someone I'm negotiating with logically, then they just counter me with logic. But if I inquire with that person as to what their logic is, then I understand their mindset and can manipulate how I want to approach them. So I think it's a matter of information gathering to begin with and then developing what your path to your end goal is going to be and figuring out how to execute on that path based on the information you gather. Um, so I do that all the time. Literally before this call, I was on a, a call negotiating an extension for one of our contracts on a piece of dirt. And I asked 14 questions probably. <laughs> it's just one after the other because almost to a fault because it, to a point where it makes you look like you don't know what you're talking about, but, but I'm doing that because I got so much information that I was looking for and it helped me to, to strategize as to how I was going to get what I needed. Exactly. And, and one example of that as being, and this is one of the biggest things that anybody in real estate with their making cold calls, talking to owners, talking to brokers, and they say, you know, you get a hold of somebody and you ask them, okay, well, what are you guys asking? And they say, especially true if you're talking to a uh, direct to owner and they say, mm -hmm. well, I want two and a half million. And a lot of people are just like, oh, okay, great. Oh, I'll see what I can do. But the right thing to do is, well, how did you come to that number? Mm -hmm. You know, start asking questions, you know, not just taking everything at face value. I mean, 
the key to a successful investor is being able to get information and disseminate that information and use it in the right way for both you, your investors, the business, and to make things work on, on both sides. Cause I, for me, I don't know about you, but it's a collaborative transaction is going to be a smoother transaction and present a lot less risk. And so what, what do you do to have a contingency for risk and pad for risk in your underwriting when you're looking at deals? Cause we've talked to a lot of value added investors. I feel like a lot of that is, is very straightforward, you know, don't, be be conservative and everything like that. But is there anything on the development side that may not be so obvious or things that you do on a daily basis to uh, keep the risk profile in check? Yeah, I, I think from an underwriting standpoint, it's the same as what you do in value add in the sense that, you know, I might, might tick up the exit cap rate another 25 basis points or something to be extra conservative, or I might carry 24 months of interest when we only think we need 16 months or I might underwrite the rents a hundred bucks lower than what I actually think we can get, you know, just creating ways to exceed expectations under promise and over deliver. I'm doing that for, for that. I mean, with that intent and then worst case scenario is those conservative aspects go wrong or hold true. And you, and, and you end up where you promised your investors. It's sort of like you set your worst case scenario to be what you're promising, but you, secretly know that within your numbers, there's a way to improve them. And that's the extra juice in, in the deal. So um, we do that. And then I would say on the construction side of things, it, it gets back to those contracts. Like if we're trying to de-risk a project, uh, risk is is um, risk is unknowns in construction. Risk is about the things that you don't know that have happened yet or, or are happening and that are gonna cost you money to fix. And so to the extent that you can use contracts to define scope of work and create less scope gap from trade to trade. It's going to save you a lot in the way of train, uh, change orders. And so we utilize those documents very meticulously and strategically to make sure that we're covering end to end the exact scope we need. And we're as specific as we can possibly be. Like we will literally write the contract, like dispose of all boxes of flooring. Like that is one of the items in the scope of work. Like not clean up your trash. It's like literally like dis discard boxes in said trash can. Because if I go over there in that room and they put the flooring down and the boxes are still sitting there, I can point to the contract and say, could do this. And not that that's a huge risk, but my point is just that we use those documents to orchestrate exactly what we need out of the trade. And it works both ways. It's transparent to them. They know what we're expecting. We have a great list of everything we're looking for and and it works out nicely so i i think those are a way that we de-risk projects um from a construction standpoint perfect and so as we wrap up what are some of your goals for yourself your company what are you working on we're filming this set early september of 2023 what are you expecting to accomplish by the end of the year what are your goals that you've set for you and your business it's a good question, man. It's, a, it's an answer I should think more often about. You get so caught up living life and doing the things that are on your plate that you kind of forget to zoom out and look at where you're heading. So I, um, off the cuff, I think by the end of the year, we got to close one of these two that we're working on. So we got a small one and a big one. I'd prefer the big one to close, but I'll take either one. So end of the year, we got our next deal closed. 
I would say beyond that, like in the next year, my goal is really to build more structure between the different companies. So I already hired a full-time person to help run the material supply business. And I really want to empower that person to play the CEO role and run with it more or less. Um, and I'm looking to next year to be able to do that. And then I want to make an internal hire for DRC to give us a little bit more back office support so we can help facilitate more volume of projects. And I want to define, I think there's a little, like a couple, there's a couple more verticals within our company that we need to better define, like manage, you know, asset management, for example, or uh, our construction process, like how that would be addressed. So I'm, I'm looking to kind of structure the company a little bit in summary um, in the next year. And then from a unit count standpoint, I mean, between these two projects, we have 358 units in the pipeline. So by this time next year, I'd love to have 500 new units in the pipeline and these two are closed and underway. Um, our goal is to build a thousand units a year, ultimately. We wanna build thousand units a year. So in order, and that means deliver. So we wanna get CFO and 1000 units every single year. So in order to do that, you gotta start three years ahead of time getting two and 300 unit projects moving along so that you're able to construct those over two and three year period so that you can ultimately deliver them over a year. So our goal is to, is to use the processes and the structure that we're building to scale to that level. That's awesome, man. And I know you can do it. Where can people find more about you? How can we support you as a podcast and as a listener base? Uh, I appreciate that. Um, I mean, we have a website, DetroitRiversideCapital.com that has company information. And then for me personally, I'm on Instagram at MultifamBike is the name. It's it's like a second account I have just for real estate stuff and uh, kind of ran out of time running it. But I do post some real estate content on there. And then my personal Instagram is just Mike underscore Wayne with two E's. Uh, my email is michael at DetroitRiversideCapital.com. So you can put this in the show notes or however that works. But um, yeah, shoot me an email. If you want to get in touch, you got a good deal we should look at or got something else you want to collab on. I'm always happy to entertain any requests. So Perfect. Michael, thank you so much for making the time today. This is one of our best, if not the best podcast that we've had to date tons of knowledge love that we talked about development that's something we haven't talked about before with a previous guest so i'm excited that we have someone like you to come and talk about it give a ton of knowledge and nuggets of information again thank you so much for for being a part of this today so man yeah i appreciate it Corey. thanks for having me well awesome guys well hey everybody thank you guys so much for listening to the latest episode of the mastering commercial real estate podcast I'm your host, Corey Mortensen. Until next time, we'll see you then. <laughs>